Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. What is the perfect recipe for launching a new and successful startup? In episode 13 of The B-Side, I speak to Michael Fox, CEO and co-founder of Fable Food, an exciting new Australian company that creates plant-based meat alternatives from shiitake mushrooms. Michael talks about how he started Fable with his co-founders, fine dining chef and mycologist Jim Fuller, and organic mushroom farmer Chris McLaughlin, and how he launched with celebrity chef Heston Blumenthal. He also reflects on the rise and fall of his previous business, Shoes of Prey, which he co-founded with ex-partner Jodie Fox, which started with a niche segment of women who were passionate about customising their shoes, to a fashion empire ready to scale globally, only to learn the hard way that what people say and do are two very different things and that mass market customers simply didn't want to customise their own shoes. He shares insights into his entrepreneurial journey and the ethical reasons that led him to adopt a vegetarian diet and a healthier lifestyle. Michael is an inspirational, high-flying entrepreneur with his feet firmly planted on the ground. He's a lovely guy and I really enjoyed our chat and I know you will too. Cheers. Boom. We're in the house. This is the B-side and we have the lovely Michael Fox in the house. How are you, Michael? Good, thanks, James. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me along. Good to chat. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for um, taking your time out of your day. I know you're an incredibly busy, busy man. Speaking of busy, what have you been up to? Yeah, so um, I've recently launched a um, plant-based meat alternative business called Fable. We, we, or we replicate... Uh, slow cooked meats like pulled pork and slow braised beef beef brisket and we do it using predominantly shiitake mushrooms and then other all natural plant-based ingredients whoa i'm assuming you're vegetarian now but you've just said a whole bunch of things that are making my mouth water so (laughs) (laughs) that's a Great challenge to try and uh, replicate the umami, beautiful, wonderful flavors of those morsels. And I'm sure you guys are doing it service, if not bettering it. Before we go into that, because I really want to talk to you about that project, why don't we start with your bio, your background. Let's go back, Michael. Let's go back. And how did you get into this field and where did it all start? We can go back a little way if you like. So I originally studied commerce and law. I grew up in Brisbane, studied commerce and law at University of Queensland, Um, Finished university, went to Clayton Newt's, one of the big law firms, as a lawyer. Realised two months into that, um, lawyering and I did not uh, did not were, were not a match. So I uh, I stayed until I stayed for nine months. Um, I got qualified as a solicitor on the Wednesday, and my last day was the Friday. So I worked for two days as a as a solicitor. Is that a record? Is that a record, mate? Is that a, is it, are you proud of that achievement? That's I think, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, I don't know anyone else's. I, could, I guess I could have left on the Wednesday. That might have been uh, saved me two more painful days. But um, just picking up on that, what was it about it that you just thought, you know what, this is really not for me? What was yeah. I thinking? Yeah, at least, um, and you know, I've only got experience at a big commercial firm, but um, at least there, as a grad, you're a small cog on some bigger project that that you don't really ha- get a lot of background on, and you're doing the shitty legal work on uh, on that project. Like we were doing some 
due diligence for some big property deal. And, you know, the interesting stuff is in the actual property deal, but that's not what I was doing. I was stuck doing the conveyancing searches on the (laughs) 3,000 properties that might be part of this deal, you know, looking whether there's easements and things on the property and it's just incredibly boring. And, And I could see that, um, you know, as a grad, I expected to do boring work, but I could see even the people above me who'd been there for 10 years, like the work that they were doing just wasn't, interest, wasn't interesting to me. You know, it might mm. be interesting to some people. You know, I think being a lawyer suits, at least a commercial lawyer at one of these big firms, suits like an introvert. I'm not, I'm, I'm an extrovert. I get my energy from other people. So yeah, I'd, be, yeah. I'd be kind of sitting in my office with the nice river view or whatever, and I'd like leave my door open and I'd see someone walk past and I'd be, oh, Caroline, come in and say hi. It's like, yeah, kind of yeah. Caroline walked past the door and like, I'd just want to connect with people rather than sitting there doing my um, conveyancing searches uh, day in, day out. Fair enough. So when you left on the Friday, where did you go after that? Um, yeah, so I teed up a job with uh, Super Retail Group. or Back then it was Super Cheap Auto. Um, ah, so yes, back yeah. then they had around 300 stores around Australia and they'd just launched um, BCF, Boating, Camping, Fishing. So it's kind of going into a retail business and And that um, had sort of stemmed from like when I was working at at the law firm, I'd be on the train on the way home and I'd pick up like I'd read Business Review Weekly. Maybe I'm showing my age, not even sure if it exists anymore, but I'd uh, I'd read Business Review Weekly and be reading about all these like interesting businesses and entrepreneurs doing exciting things and like... I, I, when I stopped and reflected on it, I was like, well, I'm not, I don't want to read anything about the legal industry, but I love reading about this business world and entrepreneurship world. And so I realized, well, if that's what I like doing in my spare time, maybe I'd enjoy work more if I went and did that as my career. So mm-hmm. I teed that mm-hmm. job up, um, and but still waited a couple of months until I got qualified as a solicitor before I went and started there. Yep. I worked on Super Cheap Auto with Matt, funnily enough, our mutual friend, Matt Newell. <laughs> That's how I met Matt. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah and so you were based up in Brisbane, the Brisbane office. Yep. Is that correct? All right. Correct. Are you from Brisbane originally? Or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I worked with Matt uh, back in IdeaWorks days. Oh, I was really? the head of, art, head of art there and we did a whole bunch of fun stuff with Russell Ingle and a whole bunch of others. Oh, uh, uh, no way. Amazing. Yeah, small yeah. World. Small, small world. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. All right. So, and you were at Super Cheap Auto for how long? Um, two years. Mm. So I did a, like a two-year mm. graduate program there, kind of settled sure. as an analyst in their merchandising team, which also wasn't really quite what I wanted to do. Um, so then from there, I went to Google and did advertising sales for, uh, and was at Google for two and a half years. So that was kind of 2007 to 2009. So it was sort of the early kind of as a sales guy, it was like unbelievable time to be working at Google, search engine marketing, really yeah, taking off. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, did two and a half years of, uh, advertising sales there. And, um, then yeah, co-founded a fashion technology business called Shoes of Prey, um, which I then did for the next 10 years. Shoes of Prey was, you could go online and design your own women's fashion shoes, choose the toe shape, heel, leathers, colors, materials for your shoe. Uh, and then we would make it and deliver it to you. So Shoes of Prey, Shoes of Prey, that was an incredible success story, maybe um, a little early for its for its time or ahead of its time, I should say. Can you talk to me briefly about Shoes of Prey and um, where it went? Yeah, so initially we did well in this um, niche of like this our core customer was this really creative customer she was um she had a good sense of her own style she often worked in an artistic sort of creative type role um and she loved she just loved the concept of and the and the execution around being able to design this kind of work of art uh as a piece of fashion and then receive it and be able to wear something that she'd helped co-create so we did really really well in that creative niche 
Um, and we grew over sort of the first three years. We didn't raise any external capital. We grew to about a two million revenue run rate. Um, we were sort of running the business at break even out of its own cash flow, growing out of its own cash flow. But we had all of these mass market fashion customers coming to our website, like literally 10,000 women a day coming to our website and not buying. And yeah, when we went, we went and did a whole bunch of market research with them, we realized these customers who weren't buying were, they weren't this creative niche. They were mass market fashion consumers and they loved the idea of designing their own shoes. That's why they're coming to our website, um, but they weren't buying. And the reasons that they gave us for not buying were, there were three. So firstly, they wanted a much more simplified shoe design experience rather than the really creative freeform design experience we had initially for the creative customer. Secondly, they wanted a sub two week lead time on their shoes. Creative customer was happy to wait five weeks, which is where our delivery times were. But mm. the mass market fashion customer was often ordering and designing shoes for a particular event. And so she wanted the, the shoes to come quickly in time for that event. And then thirdly, um, the mass market custom, fashion customer didn't want to pay a premium. And at the time we were charging about a 30% premium on the sure. same quality shoes. So we looked at those three things and we said, well, we could execute on these three three things. We could deliver this value proposition that our research says that the mass market fashion customer wants. Um, but to do that, we're going to need to uh, build our own shoe factory to speed up the delivery times and bring down the unit costs. At the time, we were outsourcing the manufacturing and our outsourced suppliers um, didn't really want to scale their business uh, to be able to do those things. No one else in the world did custom women's shoes. So if we wanted to execute on those faster lead times, lower unit costs, we'd have to build our own factory and do that ourselves. Wow. And, yeah, then, yeah. and then secondly, to simplify the shoe design experience, we would need to um, build out our team of software engineers and user experience people. Mm. And so to do those two things, build a factory, build out the software engineering team, we would need to raise external capital because that was going to take some mm. investment. So we went out and raised some venture capital funding. And then over the next five years, we raised four rounds of funding, raised $35 million. Um, sort of, you know, first round was uh, was about 3 or $4 million and gradually, mm. you know, large increasing rounds as we went along because um, we were growing. Um, and so that was to, we spent then the next five years executing on that value proposition that the mass market customer wanted. Um, sure. And then in addition to that, we did partnerships with David Jones in Australia and Nordstrom in the US. So you could go into onto the women's shoe floor of those stores and design shoes on iPads. So we kind of put the value proposition where the mass market fashion customer was. And over that period, we grew from about a 2 million revenue run rate to around a 12 million a year revenue run rate. Um, so decent growth for five years but nowhere near the growth that we needed to, you know, we needed to be break even. We needed to be at about a 25 or 30 million revenue run rate. So we're only at about 12 or about half of it. Um, and really if our market research had have been right, we should have been at like a mm. hundred million in revenue. Um, and now that we built the value proposition, we could watch how consumers behaved on our website. And what we could see was this mass market fashion customer, consciously, she thinks she wants to customize. Um, and if you ask her, she'll, she's, she'll tell you that she loves the idea of designing yeah, her shoes. Yeah. And there's a, just a few reasons why she's not. Um, but deep down, subconsciously, she doesn't really have the confidence to design her own shoes. And she doesn't really want to invest the time in it. Um, really, she just wants to see what's popular in fashion magazines or on Instagram and buy not only that design, but even that exact shoe. Mm -hmm. um, and that's... What she, so what she consciously wants and what she subconsciously wants are pretty much polar opposites. Um, subconscious is more powerful than your, than your conscious, so she's following what her subconscious wants her to do. Um, and we built a value proposition for what she 
consciously wanted, which was the opposite of what she really wanted. Isn't that so, amazing? So yeah. our value proposition just didn't resonate, um, and that's why we didn't grow into that mass market segment as well as we should have. That goes right into consumer psychology and some of those things that people say they want and actually don't act on them. I'm sure your qual and quant research suggested certain things as well, but it's not until the rubber hits the road that you realize. Yeah. And, and, you know, like the, like obvious examples of this, uh, you ask people in January, how often are you going to go to the gym this year? They're going to give you a very different answer to what they actually go and do. But the challenge we had with Shoes of Prey, um, even with the benefit of hindsight, is we were doing something completely new. No one had Mm -hmm. built this value proposition for women's fashion shoes before. Um, And so we couldn't go and watch how consumers behaved because the product didn't exist anywhere. Yeah, it, it sounds, it's just funny, you, you introduced it as being a fashion software proposition. How did you frame that again? Sorry, it was Yeah, a, like a fashion technology business, I suppose. Fashion yeah, technology, yeah. fashion meets tech, yeah. That, that is a really interesting way of framing it. It just reminds me of the canvas of the world and the, the word presses and the, or Squarespace, or, you know, there's a certain element, there's a framework and yep. a consistent framework at that, but you're allowed to optimize and tweak and craft and create within that framework it did feel a little ahead of its time didn't it so what happened after shoes of prey and what did you do after that we tried to see if we could go back into that creative niche Uh, we also did well in some other niches like wedding shoes and small Mm. and large wide and narrow sizes uh, which we could do because we're manufacturing on demand but the niches just weren't big enough um, for us to operate yeah yeah Yeah, and then we tried to sell the business but we had challenges there because it was it was a very complex business we ultimately we closed the business down Um, we did end up selling the selling the business wasn't obviously wasn't the result that we were we were aiming for Mm. so Mm. i finished up with shoes of prey in mid 2018 um, so nearly two years ago now i then took six months off Um, my wife's danish Uh, we went over to uh, spent six months in Denmark. Our, our second child was born over there, um, and yeah, I just had a just took time out to have a break. I, I think I needed it after after the you know it was a tough last year or two with Shoes of Prey. Um, you know, kind of laying off two hundred people and oh, for sure. uh, yeah. not returning money for investors, and you know all, all of those kinds of things were were yeah. challenging. So had a break. Just yeah, took time out being a parent, but ended up reading a lot about just mm. different things wherever my intellectual curiosity took me. Um, mm. And I've I've been vegetarian now for four and a half years. Um, yeah. For me, kind of ethical and environmental and health reasons in, in that sure. order. Um, and when I, I started to read more about um, industrial animal agriculture and got very passionate about the idea of helping to contribute to ending it, was thinking through the ways that I might be able to help do that. Uh, being vegetarian, I tried to convince a lot of people around me to become vegetarian. And I think in four and a half years, I've convinced two people I caught up with one of them recently. He's not even vegetarian anymore. So, so I'm obviously a pretty <laughs> terrible activist. Uh, so, but I thought maybe I could apply my entrepreneurial skills to starting an alternative protein company. You know, I was raised a vegetarian and I grew up eating lentils and mung beans and <laughs> amazing curries. And, and it wasn't until I think I was in my teenage years that I developed a bit of a taste for meat. I couldn't really... I only I loved to roast. Like when I'd go to my grandparents' house, they'd load me up on all the meat because you know I hadn't been eating it at home. So <laughs> you know, crazy hippie mummy, she's not she's not feeding you enough meat. You know, so, so they'd load me up. I got to my teenage years, and my mum would allow me to cook steak, but she'd be upstairs. I'd be downstairs cooking the steak because she couldn't stand the smell of it. Wow. I would like to go back to being a vegetarian. I believe in the ethical aspects and i know it's the right thing to do but i just haven't changed my lifestyle i haven't made that shift and i think eventually i will be it's inevitable because i i firmly believe 
that it's the right thing to do, you know, and you follow that path, you're not getting off it, right? If you firmly in your heart and your gut feel that it's the right thing to do, then it's really hard to shake, you know. So, um, and eating meat actually makes me feel quite ill if I have it too often. My wife and I don't eat a lot of red meat. We'll have it very rarely. I think both of us are very keen on mm. making that transition. So you might have another couple <laughs> on your on your conversion list. Yeah, well you're you're exactly our target customer. I mean the the vegans and the vegans and vegetarians are already not eating meat. Um so so in terms of our mission of helping to end industrial animal agriculture, that they're already they're already doing that. So um so we want to help make it easier for the it's kind of called the flexitarian consumer. So mm. exactly like you, someone who still eats meat, still kind of likes the taste and texture, kind of struggles to wants to reduce their meat consumption, but but struggling to do it. Yeah, um, we want to help make it easier for you by giving you a product that has the taste and texture of meat, is sold at the same price as meat, um, but mm. just happens to be plant based. What I love about that as well is it's, it's acknowledging that there is a process, there is a, a, a maturing into being a full vegetarian. It's not like something that you can just switch off or switch on and no one's expecting you to do that. Yep. So you're sort of, you're taking a cultural food habit. For yep. some people, it goes generations deep. I was raised, but so it's not this mysterious thing. I was raised a vegetarian and I can mm. quite easily, without feeling as though it's a massive shift culinarily uh, for me but i think for other people it's huge it's you know we <laughs> the good old um if anything anglo-saxon culture of you know steak and three veg is pretty strong in some some yeah. of the um some of the populations you talked about ethically sourcing what are your thoughts on boutique agricultural farming practices or even hunting ethically to source your protein yeah look um better than factory farmed uh, eating factory farmed animals um but still challenges with it so yeah, yeah firstly from a um sustainability perspective there's seven billion people on the planet <laughs> yeah. um if we all went out yes hunting, true yeah, bows uh, and arrows would all be <laughs> Yeah, it just doesn't, wouldn't... They'd, 99% like, we'd, of it would be a horrible shot, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, well yeah, yeah and, even, and even if we had the... Even if all 7 billion of us had the ability to do it, um, we'd, there's probably like there's three, three weeks' worth of supply of food <laughs> left in the before wild. Before we're looking at each other going, mmm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. so it's, it's, a, like it's, an, it's a nice thought, and for the yeah, tiny number of yeah. people who do it, you know, maybe it's better, it's better than eating factory farm yeah. animals, but we can't... 7 billion people... People can't do that. Um, same with um, like free range, uh, yeah, yeah, nice small farms. Um, again, like the richest people in the world can afford to eat that way, but seven billion people can't mm. eat that way. Like they, if you had small farms producing meat to try and feed seven billion people, we'd need about we'd need like three planets worth of land space to do that. So from an environmental and sustainability and just scale for feeding the planet perspective, it doesn't work. Um, and then from, yeah, just from, I mean, depends on your views of ethics, but um, sure. an animal still has to die. Um, and then there's the health aspects too. And there's no denying the health benefits of a plant-based diet by any means. I don't think anyone can stand up and say eating far less meat or even no meat is unsustainable or unhealthy. I think meat gets interchanged with uh, protein quite a bit and I think people are a bit clumsy with that language we need protein but do we need meat you know and I don't know enough about this I'm you know far more about this than me I yeah. would imagine the answer isn't we don't need meat flesh from no. an animal we do need protein and it's more the question of the most efficient uh, cost-effective way of getting that protein and it's exactly 
what you were talking about, right? Where is there a time, a place? Because you've been a vegetarian for four years. What was it four years ago that triggered, you know, it's for a lot of people there's this one moment or was it just a slow burn towards being more mindful? Or? Um, I had a bit of both, I guess. So there was a bit of a slow burn over probably 10 years. I'd probably reduce mm. my meat consumption down to about a third of what it had been before. I mean, I grew up in Queensland eating steaks yeah. for dinner every second steak. night. It's the home of the, the great steak, isn't it? You know? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I loved meat as a kid. I think I had, mm. I had a song I used to sing called Steak of Glory that I, that I made up because I just love steak so much. Um, so, so it, 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 yeah, Can you so, sing that for me, mate? Steak of Glory. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it on the steak podcast. Steak of Glory. <laughs> That's pretty close, actually. It's a chunk <laughs> of beef. No, anyway, well, <laughs> something like that. I'll take your rendition. That's better yeah. than mine. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, so I, I mean, I grew up loving meat i can't even pinpoint it was probably just a few like bits and pieces mm. that i'd read i'd all, I, and i'd always had this kind of question in the back of my mind of like like i have a pet we had a pet dog growing up you know mm. the animals that i'm eating like why is it mm. you know, i'd gone and seen some pigs at farms and they seemed like mm. cute fun cuddly creatures maybe not as visually mm. attractive as a dog but they seemed kind of friendly and nice and i just had this nagging question in the back of my mind of like i, I would do anything to protect my pet dog yeah. Yet I'm eating, I'm eating a pig. And so I had that nagging question, but I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about it. The kind of tipping point for me was I read a book by Jonathan Safran Foer called Eating Animals. And yeah, easily the most influential book on my life I've ever read. I, I kind of went wow. vegetarian yeah. the next day. Um, it mm. just lays out the case for a, a plant-based diet. Yeah. It's the best laid out case for anything I've ever read. Um, partially because the, the topic is it's pretty irrefutable, um, but also just the way he does it. He's won some awards for his fiction writing, um, and this was his first kind of non-fiction book. He takes yeah. you on the journey of how he switched to being vegetarian. So he went from, like, he wanted to go and investigate the meat industry himself. He had some questions sure. in his mind, and he takes you on the journey. And he takes you on the journey of, like, in his mind, trying to um, trying to refute his own thoughts. Like, so he, you know, there was a... <laughs> I'd been reading the book and I was like, well, fish, surely fish are okay. You know, you go, yeah, go yeah, take, yeah. catch them out of the ocean. You know, that's, that's yeah. probably okay. But then, then he comes to a chapter and he says, he's, he asks the same question that I'd had 10 pages before and says, well, what about fish? And then he does a whole chapter on fish oh, and right. yeah, points out yeah. that, that every fish dies by drowning. Like you, they're, they're taken yeah. out of the ocean and they drown. And if, like, if I got a puppy here right now and drowned it on this, on this video call, You'd call the cops, and the cops yeah, would rightfully yeah, go and yeah. take me away. But why is it any different drowning a fish, taking them out of the water to drowning yeah, a Yeah, it's interesting how this – I can't remember what it was, but this, someone framed it as a measure of the value of life. And why is it that humans humans are at the height of the value chain, whereas fish are at the bottom of the value chain? But life is life, right? And even if you take humans as different, like I, I personally don't think we are, but even if no, you no, no, leave we're humans out of primates, about, that's about it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Why, why is a dog different to a fish? Um, mm. And the only reason we treat a dog differently to a fish is because we relate to a dog. We have dogs as pets, but there is nothing, no logical reason, particularly to distinguish a dog from a pig. Pigs are actually yeah. more intelligent than dogs. Um, they live in com communal arrangements in the wild. Um, they tend for their young. Um, they're very intelligent animals. Uh, yet we treat, if we treated dogs the way we treat pigs, um, like, like society just wouldn't, wouldn't allow it. You can quite easily not think about these things. Yep. You know, what I like about people who do turn vegetarian is that they have. Mm. They've thought about it. 
Do you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think we need to do more of that. We need to be really mindful of what we're consuming because a lot of people don't. They go their whole lives without looking at the packet of um, cling-wrapped meat and thinking, where did it come from? How was it sourced? What were the processes? How was the animal treated? Do you know? And that's yeah. just the starting point. You know? yeah. <laughs> What's the process with the products you, you are developing? How do you source? What are the base materials and ingredients? I didn't want to compete head-to-head against um, businesses like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat who've been in the space for a while and, and have great products. Um, so I was thinking through, okay, well, how can I differentiate? Was there another gap in the market that I can, I can fill? Um, and I had two thoughts. One was I wanted to replicate a different type of meat to burgers or beef mints or chicken, which have all been done. So that's sort of where we've ended up doing a, um, a pulled pork, slow-cooked meats like pulled pork, braised beef, beef brisket. Um, and then secondly, I'm a pretty healthy eater, um, live on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, shop at my local farmer's markets, do a lot of my own cooking, bake my own sourdough, brew my own kombucha. Um, and uh, I'm a pretty healthy eater, try to eat a minim- minimally processed diet. Um, and so my thought was, could you produce a meat alternative out of really natural, healthy, minimally processed whole food uh, type ingredients? Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of set out to see if that would be possible. Don't obviously come from, don't come from the food industry, come from fashion. So I went and talked to um, as many people in the food industry as I could, um, talk to a whole bunch of chefs that kind of put me onto the idea of potentially using mushrooms as a base ingredient. Um, mushrooms are yeah, an incredibly healthy food um, and uh, have a lot of the natural umami flavors of meat in them. Um, so then started exploring mushrooms and that mm. led me to meet my two co-founders. Uh, so Jim Fuller uh, grew up in Texas, a chef for 10 years, wanted to understand the science behind what he was cooking. So he went and studied chemical engineering and agricultural science, majored in mycology, which is mushroom science. And then he's worked the last 12 years as a mushroom scientist uh, in Australia. So Jim knows, like, it's got this weird skill set of being a chef and a mushroom scientist. Then Chris McLaughlin co-founded Australia's largest organic mushroom farm. Um, he was organic farmer of the year and young farmer of the year in 2018. Wow. Um, yeah. And yeah, so he's got this strong uh, agricultural uh, mushroom farming background. So between Jim and Chris, they know everything there is to know about growing mushrooms, the science behind mushrooms, how to cook mushrooms. They just started doing some work on some meat alternatives based on mushrooms, which is kind of exactly the sort of thought what I was looking for. So, so we, um, yeah, we joined forces and yeah, developed our first product, which is the yeah, slow cooked meat alternative, uh, called Fable. Um, it's made from 62% shiitake mushrooms. Um, so we basically take the shiitake mushroom, which is yeah, incredibly healthy mushroom used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years. Um, we have Western science has caught up to all of the, all of the health benefits of it. Um, we should be eating a lot more shiitake mushrooms. So we take the shiitake mm-hmm. mushroom, we shred it to give you that sort of stringy, slow-cooked meat yeah, texture. Yeah. Um, and then the rest of our ingredient deck is yeah, all natural plant-based ingredients. The shiitake mushroom has this incredibly distinct flavor, doesn't it? Yeah. I love it. I really do. Uh, we basically take the shiitake mushroom, we shred it, um, then we add other all-natural plant-based ingredients, um, including some uh, flavors like uh, yeast extract, salt, pepper, and then we cook the product in a in a couple of uh, unique ways to kind of dial. We want to dial back that. I, I like this flavor of shiitake too, but we're trying to replicate meat. We had a lunch in December where um, a chef cooked uh, a lasagna using Fable for sixty people. Uh, we served the served it without telling anyone what it was. Uh, nobody, literally not a single person out of the 60 suspected that it wasn't meat. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. it was 
almost like a mystery dining session. That- exactly. So and so our goal is our goal is like the value proposition for this flexitarian customer. We want to make it as easy as possible for them to reduce their meat consumption. So so they don't want to eat falafel balls and hemp seed patties because that, that's a bit different and difficult. Um, they want the taste and texture of meat, and they want the cooking experience of meat. So we. We've to, like number one in in developing the product has been replicating that taste and texture yeah. of slow cooked meats. Well, what I really like about that is you're starting from a real market oriented platform, and then you're looking at the behaviours and the tastes, uh, literally, of the the audience that you know very well, and you're building your product around that. It feels like it's the perfect marketing um, basis for a product or a brand. You know, it's where we should all start, really, isn't it? With with yeah, a, a market orientation, understanding our audiences and then building everything all the tactics around that you know and one and one of the learnings out of uh, that sort of experience from shoes of prey that we've applied here too is yeah with fable we're not doing something completely new there are other meat alternatives on the market you know they're replicating different types of meat they're using different ingredient decks but um but there are meat alternatives on the market so i can literally Mm. go into coles and woolies um, there's a whole bay of these products now and I can watch how consumers are shopping that bay. I can see which products they pick up and then put back down. I can see which ones they pick up and put in their trolley. Um, and then I can creepily go up and ask them, um, you know, why did you pick that one up and not buy it? Why did you, mm. why did you choose this one? Um, so I can, do, I, can, I can watch consumer behavior um, and mm. do my market research that way, which is something we weren't able to do with, um, with Shoes of Prey. So that's been a big help in identifying how yeah, important yeah. taste and texture is to consumers in this category. If any business has this overarching mission, I, uh, yours could be to create healthier communities and try and convert as many people to healthier lifestyles through a plant-based diet. Then you ladder down and you, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to target this audience. Um, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to ensure that it's easy as possible to convert meat eaters or flexitarians into fully plant-based. But you know what I mean, and it all yeah. just it just works beautifully. Yep. Anyway, so that's um, that's really interesting. Thanks for taking us through that. Were there any hurdles, or did you face any challenges in that product development phase? Because you set yourself a mission. Yeah, I mean there were a bunch. Yeah, yeah. Um, particularly because I didn't have a. For me, a lot of the stuff was related to my not having a food background. You know, in, in some ways, ignorance is bliss, and you know, it, I probably threw myself at. at things that if I had have had more knowledge maybe I, I might not have going into the supermarket mushrooms are expensive how are we going to how are we going to be able to make that work um what's what species of mushrooms are going to work best uh you know but but then these are all things that um once I went and invest you know learned more about the industry and met my co-founders all, all of that all of that became easier um and then found some good manufacturers to work with and all of those things became easier but but yeah definitely a bunch of hurdles on the way were there any surprising things you learned about mushrooms that you didn't know otherwise? Oh like- my god, I've learned so much, so <laughs> much about mushrooms. Um, I mean, the, okay, the largest uh, living organism in the world is a is a mushroom. Really? Um, basically, wow, a, I didn't a, know that. Yeah, fungus sort of growing underneath um, a, a forest in North America. Isn't you can actually amazing? see the impact of uh, this fungus on the forest that it grows in uh, from space, apparently. Um, wow. So, yeah, there's a there's That's mushroom one big mushroom. for the day. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of slow-cooked pork, slow yeah. pork-like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, another thing, and, and the thing with this, with, this, uh, with the, the mass of this mushroom is 
most of when mushrooms grow, most of the mushrooms are growing underground. There's the mycelium, yeah, sure. which is oh, right. that's kind of yeah. analogous to the root system of plants. Mm. It's a little bit different, mm. but that's probably the closest analogy. And then what we think of as mushrooms, the bit that grows out of the ground, that's actually just the the um, uh, reproduction system of the mushrooms. It's kind of yeah, like a, yeah. a flower this, in a sense. Um, the flower, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah. spores. So, that's where the spores exactly. are released, yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. quite interesting. I love their fascinating things, aren't they? And they're delicious. <laughs> so, and they're delicious, yeah. And, and it's a third kingdom. Yeah. We, have, we have three kind of life kingdoms in the world. There's yeah, plants, animals, and fungi. So it's, it's different. They're different to plants. Whenever we cook for our vegetarian friends, um, they roll their eyes because we always fall back on the old um, uh, mushroom risotto dish. <laughs> we can cook it really well, but apparently they eat it all the time because it's, yeah. you know, it's it's so delicious. Basically, you know, and yeah, you don't miss yeah. miss as meat eaters, you don't miss not having any uh, animal based protein in it. That's for sure. You've got this really clear, purpose driven business idea. A lot of people when starting out with some sort of business endeavor or a startup they haven't quite visualized exactly what it is that they want to try and go to market with it sounds like you started with some themes and some big questions like what if we could do x yeah would you say that would be a good place to start for anyone looking at like yourself you know and i guess that's another question like why start a business actually originally i wanted to go work for another alternative protein company i think after shoes of prey um i, I was a bit burnt out and my initial thought was um, to go and work for someone else. So, so I actually kind of settled on the plant-based meat space as a category I wanted to to operate in, and I figured I'll go work for someone else in that category. But I wanted to move back to Australia, and there were just no jobs in the category. So, so I kind of had a choice of either go get a job in a different industry, or if I wanted to work in this industry, I'd just start a company. So, do you come from a, a family of entrepreneurs? Do you think it's in your blood starting a business, the entrepreneurial, the merchant style spirit that? Yeah. people talk of um, my parents weren't entrepreneurs um, so I didn't have it um, in watching them but but I, I do think it's in my yeah in my DNA in like in my DNA somehow and I think a couple of the characteristics that I've got which lend themselves to entrepreneurship is like I'm very optimistic um, yeah positive yeah. glass half full and yeah. you almost need a irrational level of optimism to start a business like and and literally irrational like it, it's irrational to start a food company and think that i can sell a sell a food product when there's you know big yeah. existing companies like nestle and and unilever who are launching plant-based meat products like um you have to have a an irrational sense of optimism so yeah well 300 years ago you would have been um, trying to develop funds to to bankroll a journey around the world to collect spices from lands you had no idea of, didn't speak the language, and right. and, and pretty right. much had probably only seen three white guys before, you know. Yep. Um, yep. It, that was yep. irrational, you know, and yep. you, 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 yep. you would have died of scurvy or <laughs> a whole bunch of other things before you even got there. But I think that's the nature of um, entrepreneurialism, really, isn't it? Yep. It comes from yeah. these these naively optimistic foundations, and exactly. you either sort of have it, or you yep. don't. Yeah. yeah, I imagine it would be hard to start a business if if you didn't have that, because there are things that come that you come up against, like like yeah, so many things in the last eighteen months that if I wasn't literally irrationally irrationally optimistic, then you know I probably would have stopped. I think in the right work environment, I would be quite happy working in another company for mm. someone else. I think it would t- take a fair bit cultural. You know, there'd have to be a lot of good mm. cultural things going on in that organization. 
um, to make it work. Like I'd probably have a yeah, pretty limited. You'd want some skin in, skin in skin in the game somehow. And I do. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, for, yeah. for me to get motivated too, I do like to have the the skin in the game for sure. Yeah. That, that risk my my risk profile coming with that mm. irrational optimism. You know, I'm I'm mm. I wouldn't say I'm risk seeking, but I'm definitely not risk averse. Yeah. And that Who helps. would some of those those companies or brands or organizations be that you would work for? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I enjoyed my two and a half years at Google. Um, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that was at, at least at that phase in Google's life. I, I feel like now it might be a bit different. Mm. Are there any brands that you think are doing some really good things that you would model your business on? Like, you know, not so much competitors, but they could be in a completely different category. I love, um, I love Oatly's uh, kind of the creative side of their branding. Um, Oatly's a oat milk drink so they're in mm. kind of the plant-based dairy space um and I, yeah i really love the, the the creative branding work that they've done and just every consumer touch point with that brand it's just so consistent such a strong feel for yeah kind of everything that their brand is and their brand brand stands for i mean even in our category like i love uh, what impossible foods and beyond meat have done in a lot of different ways um to, to help drive this category forward and yeah particularly impossible's approach of launching with a three michelin star chef and then kind of working their way down from top level chefs we've kind of emulated the same path we've launched with heston blumenthal in december last year and then into food service and meal kits and now launching into into retail we just launched into harris farm last week and launching into woolworths in second week of june Impossible is great. I haven't seen any of Impossible's marketing. I just, just word of mouth, largely, and and earned media. What are you doing to market your product, and what's the yeah. positioning around Fable? So I think Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, they um, it's a clever strategy. They position themselves as the future of food, um, and that that's very smart for driving consumer trial. Um, you know, you want to try this Impossible Burger or this Beyond Meat Burger that is replicating meat. It's kind of the new thing. Um, and so you go and try it and then hopefully you like it and repeat purchase. So that's kind of their strategy is positioning as the future of food to drive consumer trial. Um, our strategy is, is we've, yeah, we've taken a slightly different approach um, in that we think there's, a, there's certainly a segment of these flexitarian consumers who want to eat a really um, healthy, uh, minimally processed diet. It's kind of health reasons as to why a lot of flexitarians are wanting to reduce their meat consumption health is Mm. sort of given Mm. in all the market research as the biggest reason more than the environment and a lot more than the ethics Um, and so yeah we're positioning our product as a really healthy uh, whole food based minimally processed based um, meat alternative um, and we use mushrooms as the base ingredient to achieve that in terms of marketing, um, are you working with agencies? Uh, you, you mentioned the general store earlier. What's your sort of more tactical base marketing? Yeah, so, so we're doing a lot of par- doing a lot of partnerships at the moment. So um, uh, about a month ago, we did a uh, we called it kind of the stay home date night hamper. I live on the Sunshine Coast. We partnered with four local cafes and restaurants who did um, who were just starting to do takeaway and delivery. Um, so we wanted to help kind of su- support them and, and spread the word that, of the fact that they were reopened. You know, they couldn't have customers come into store, but they were sure. doing takeaway and delivery. So they did some Fable Ready Meals. Um, we partnered with a lo- local brewery who provided some beer. Um, sure. And then uh, we partnered with a local pottery studio who was, you know, kind of also struggling through this period. And they provided a pottery at-home pottery kit. Uh, and then uh, we partnered with a local vegan des- uh, cake shop that, provided some cupcakes and so it was this full date night hamper so you got dinner drinks dessert and a at-home pottery kit 
um, and we sold that for ninety nine dollars on the on the Sunshine Coast, and um, mm. just did a, it was a forty eight hour online pop up. Um, Channel Seven News on the Sunshine Coast came and covered it. Got like front page yeah, of the local yeah. paper, um, so that got us some good brand awareness on the Sunshine Coast. Um, we just did another uh, sort of pop up campaign in partnership with some people. Um, we called it uh, Dinner and Doodles. It was um, so we partnered with a life drawing studio. That oh, fantastic! <laughs> normally does. <laughs> you know in person yeah, it's an yeah. art studio normally does in person yeah. life drawing classes they've been doing those classes on zoom so um this coming saturday night uh yeah, yeah there's a there's a life drawing class and then we similar to the date night hamper we partnered with restaurants in melbourne sydney and brisbane who did fable ready meals um pan of chocolate provided some chocolate um and so yeah you get dinner yeah. and, a, and an online life drawing class as a as an activity what we're seeing is a lot of these businesses building trial and awareness in audiences that may have not otherwise. Are there any others that you've seen pop up during this COVID-19 period that you feel are doing it really well? Actually, there's a uh, there's a fresh food distributor up here on the, Sun, on the Sunshine Coast called Suncoast Fresh. So their business normally is delivering fresh produce to restaurants and cafes. So you can imagine when all this coronavirus yeah. uh, hit, restaurants and cafes closed, their business was down like 80 90%. So they mm. pivoted into doing... Um, uh, doing uh, fresh produce boxes deliver- delivered to people. Um, and so they've been delivering from Noosa down to Byron Bay. Uh, sure. And they've done just insanely well, selling like thousands of these boxes every week. Um, yeah. So pivoted from a, being a B2B business into a direct-to-consumer business. You know, they had all this fresh produce. They had this delivery trucks. So, But the restaurants didn't weren't taking deliveries, but people wanted food delivered at home. So they mm. just switched their business model within a week and yeah. also doing incredibly good on uh, good work on social media, super creative, funny, interesting. Um, even, just, even if you don't yeah. want to buy boxes from them, follow them um, at Suncoast yeah. Fresh. Um, Suncoast Fresh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just really clever, really clever, fun, quirky content. Well, I'm from Erskineville in Sydney and close to Newtown. There's a restaurant, Rising Sun Workshop. It's fantastic, highly recommended. What they've done is they've they've given you a make-at-home ramen kit so you can eat your loved breakfast ramen, but you make it yourself at home. Now, I think it's a great idea. I really think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. Do you think it demystifies the cooking process if you can just do it at yourself at home? Yeah, I think for, for me, the experience of eating at a restaurant is um, it's partially the food, but it's probably even more the actual experience yeah, of going experience, to that yeah. restaurant. Like, yeah, is the, yeah. what does the restaurant look like? How's the staff? It's a bit more mm. of a communal environment. Um, so so they won't have lost any of that. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah, but it depends on if you're if you as a customer are specifically going for that ramen and then they've taught you to cook it at home and it's but it also depends how easy it is to cook it at home. Oh, look, I mean, it's, yeah, look, uh, it's, yeah. It, 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 I think you're right. It's a combination of things. It makes me yeah. feel cool when I walk in there. You know, yeah. it's an old motorcycle. It's like a dais. It's an old motorcycle thing. Yeah. So yeah, it's a combination of things. I think you're you're 100 yeah. right. So in terms of uh, what drives you, uh, a lot of these things are in, innate. What would you say your beast mode would be? I have this like in like insane drive to want this business to succeed um and i think it comes from that drive comes from two places one it's um the mission of wanting to help end industrial animal agriculture um like even if money didn't matter this is the problem in the world that i would want to be working on most um and and i just i wake up on a saturday and a sunday morning and and this is what i want to be spending my time doing i want to spend some time with my kids um but outside of spending time with my kids um this is like the number one thing that i want to be focused on um and then secondly the fact that 
we didn't achieve what we set out to achieve with Shoes of Prey. Um, I think I it drives this, it adds this extra personal drive to want to make Fable succeed, like mostly because I want to prove to myself that um, that yeah i can i can start a business and make that successful um but there's also a little bit of wanting to wanting to show other people that that um that i can do that too but what would you say would be the top tips you would give to someone who shares that drive and that determination to go out on their own find what you're passionate about and it's like a venn diagram you've got to find the intersection of something that you're deeply passionate about overlapping with something that where there is like a a business model that works and so whether you want to start a business or whether you want to go and work for another business if you can find work in an industry or a category or on a product that you're truly deeply passionate about it just it it i think improves your chances of success uh, as a big thing but it also just makes your life so much more enjoyable there's a whole bunch of other things too like getting like rattling some off getting the right sort of co-founders in place um capitalizing your business appropriately you know if you a lot of businesses don't need to raise external capital that and that's great and if that's what your suits your business go down that path um if you if your business does require investment and capital bringing on the right investors is important you know setting the right culture hiring the right the right people particularly making sure you've got the right people early on because they're going to help drive your culture as your business grows um you know there's lots of other um lots of other things like that but but I think if yeah getting taking the time in my experience having that 6 months off to really take the time to work out what I was passionate about and where that intersected with a business model and my skill sets. Um, that was the most impactful thing I've done in a long time. Yeah, that's really good advice. And I think it's so important. Again, it goes back to something that you set yourself as a mission. It's so important that that is the heart and soul of your business and then everything else is um, how we facilitate that. You know, I think it's incredibly important and it comes up as a theme time and time again. If you were to sum up your philosophy, your approach as a bite of wisdom, what what would that be? Yeah, there's a Steve Jobs quote that I think summarizes it nicely um, and it's being the richest man in the cemetery doesn't matter to me going to bed at night saying we've done something wonderful that's what matters to me that's brilliant well that's you've definitely given me something to think about from here on i think it's quite timely because like i said to you when we first started talking i think the universe works in funny ways you know and i, I maybe this is a conversation i needed to have and it might be the conversation that uh, listeners might need to hear as well because i think it's definitely important so you know, I really, I really want to thank you for taking the time out. I know you're a busy man. So tell us, where can our listeners find out more about Fable? Um, yeah, so fablefood.co is our website. Um, Instagram, on Instagram, we're at fablefoodco. Uh, and then, yeah, our product's available in Harris Farm Market stores. Uh, and then from the second week of June, uh, we'll be in 600 Woolworth stores nationally. Um, and then we're in a bunch of restaurants too, so you can go on to fablefood.co and there's a list of uh, all the different restaurants where, that serve Fable too. It's been an absolute pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, James. Yeah, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Really appreciate it. And um, let's let's touch base again. I'd like to uh, link link up with you in a, a few months' time just to see how things are going. I'll definitely look out for your, your awesome, slow, pulled pork-like shiitake mushroom. <laughs> um, and I might even uh, send you an Instagram pic once I've cooked it as well because yeah, that's right that. up my alley for sure. Perfect. Yeah, thanks, James. Cheers, no, really mate. nice chatting to you. Yeah, And your, and your mum yeah. was a... Uh, a, a visionary in being uh, bringing you up vegetarian and being vegetarian or, or, uh, back then. Uh, she She's, was. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. 
<laughs> Cheers, mate. Thank, thanks, and let's talk soon. Thanks, James. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers. Cheers.